0: Hello, this is Earl Fontenelle. You are listening to the Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast, and we are speaking with Jairus, a man with only one name, who wrote an intriguing book called North about all manner of very interesting linked themes. And let's just talk about it. Thanks for coming down. No
1: problem, it's great to be here. Um, What's North about? So, uh, in summary, it's a history of cosmology, uh, looking specifically at the... at Cosmology, as we've um, understood it in our culture for, um, I guess, you know, for about 1500 years until the Copernican Revolution, uh, geocentric cosmology, and specifically... That kind of cosmology, from a spiritual angle, so thinking of uh, Earth as central, and uh, there being a kind of imagined axis, or um, or on the apparent axis of the Earth's rotation, um, there being uh, envisioned um, some kind of sacred. Um, uh, axis such as a tree or a pole or whatever which bridges heaven and earth basically um, and initially it was about that uh, I considered the that kind of cosmology as having very deep roots because it's uh, simplistically very intuitive from, from actual experience and my idea was that 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 kind of emphasis on lived experience would have been uh, very ancient, and so we would have had this cosmology, in some sense, uh, going very far back. And um, But in the end, it turned out to be uh, not such a simple story, and a lot of what, what it became about was exploring how people would have seen the world before geocentric cosmology. Uh-huh.
0: So one of the things you do in the book that I really enjoyed was you sort of debunk some some bullshit you discovered some bullshit on the way which might have Mm -hmm. been bullshit that set you on the right track in the first place but then it ended up you're Mm. like no this is just wrong so one you have Eliade Mm -hmm. with his claims about the primordial
1: polar blah blah
0: so tell us walk us through that because that's really intriguing
1: yeah that was that was a, a a real pivot for the whole project because I like how you did that pivot Ah well, yeah, it uh, just comes naturally these yes. days. Uh, <laughs> I had to, in, in discovering this falsehood or kind of scholarly problem in Aliad's work, I had to almost do a kind of 180 degree turn in my research. My initial fascination out of crazy drug experiences and dreams was this fascination with the image of the sky as a vortex pivoting on the pole star or. Um, if you happen to have a pole star in your era, and the image of all the stars circling around this central point, and in my imagination that being imagined to go faster and faster, and there being a kind of vortex that would suck you up into some unknown other world, heaven or whatever. So I was fascinated with this, and I was fascinated with the apparent traces of it in shamanic cultures. Say, I mean, certainly I was picking this up from Eliade's book on shamanism, Siberian uh, shamanic traditions of, say, ascending up the smoke uh, from the fire through the hole in the top of the yurt, which was seen as a kind of microcosm of the sky's structure with a hole at the top that you would uh, go through. And there was this one story in Eliad's work that stuck in my mind and as I started to work towards the idea of doing a book on this, that bit in Eliad was there in my mind and I thought ah that's my route to ground my sense of this kind of uh, what I call polar cosmology really far back in the roots of human history and this this thing was a a kind of ethnographic snippet that Eliad had come across in his in his uh, research and made a lot of which was um, an Australian Aboriginal tribe who wandered about and their habit was in when they, you know, they were nomadic, but if they settled in a place for a while. The first thing they did was set up this pole that they carried around with them everywhere. And for Eliad, this was like a, a really kind of fundamental, primordial illustration of a huge part of his theorizing, which is this, the way in which people cosmicize their space and the. It was tremendously important for this tribe to set up the central pole and then that articulated their living um, space around in a kind of uh, mirror of the sky structure. Although, obviously, as a side note, things are going to be a bit different in Australia. Yeah, (laughs) I'm not quite sure of the kind of the star there. I don't don't know. But anyway, the punchline to the story is gives it a, a lot of heft is that this pole apparently broke at one point yeah. and the people in the tribe were so devastated, they literally laid down and died and Eliad used this as, well it's like, you know, this is such a crucial cosmological foundation of human being, that people would like lay down and die when it's, it's broken right. now, I started digging into that to, you know, to, just to find out more about it and I don't know if you know, if you know um, Graham Harvey he's a scholar of uh, religion he's specialized in uh, animistic religious beliefs and i contacted him and he recommended uh, a book by jonathan z smith this book to take place i sat down and read it and he completely completely overturned devastated eliad's evidence basically this uh, ethnographic snippet wasn't a story of a tribe who had a pole it was a story that Australian Aborigines told about a fictional tribe in the Dreamtime, and this was a a kind of, you know, mythical story, and people all laying down to die, all that kind of stuff. It's all uh, part of a story, and it's part of uh, a very complex cycle of Dreamtime stories. It wasn't even a very important story within the cycle, and... Not only that, but the, the story of the pole um, the, and the story of the broken pole is actually, as in great many Aboriginal myths, a story told to account for a landscape feature. Right. There's a particular kind of jagged rock or so on and it's said to be the broken pole of the blah, blah, blah. John, and Jonathan Zed Smith's... Uh, I you know I I just couldn't refute his conclusion, which was that Eliad had taken this story out of context and misused it to valorise his uh, vertically oriented, um, sky fixated cosmos. What well, obviously it's not just his, yeah, but it's a particular cosmos that Eliad was interested in, and he had taken this Aboriginal snippet, uh, used it to impute this cosmos to aboriginal culture when in fact the aboriginal focus was a kind of horizontal landscape based view of the world and you know kind of demonstrated by the fact that their their primary concern is this landscape feature and their little kind of tale of the uh, the pole and the tribe or whatever is kind of secondary to their concern with the features of the landscape and the living mm. presence of the ancestors in the in the landscape so so that yeah that was a that was a huge upset for my the direction of my research yeah i had to took a i don't know a few weeks of kind of like consideration and i had to swallow my pride and abandon my direction and go somewhere else so
0: which is yeah. what scholars do what what yeah. good scholars do so we shall of course be covering eliade as Part of western esotericism mm-hmm. when the time comes in the Schwepp because he's though though very complex you know he's hanging out with Jung and Corbin and Scholem and all those guys mm-hmm. at Eranos every year and he, he comes from romantic fascist or quasi-fascist movement in his youth he's taking a piece of scholarship he's read totally misreading it and creating in a way a new myth
1: yeah and I think it's important to point out what uh, Jonathan Smith highlighted which was this was the only kind of primordial evidence of an axis mundi oriented cosmology uh, we're talking about you know kind of uh, hunter gatherer or kind of pre-civilized uh, cultures this was the only piece of evidence that that Eliad rallied and and it, it, was, it was completely uh, hollow, it mm. had no kind of foundation. So that's what interested me, is that there was, a to me, looking at a lot of what you would call kind of traditionalist scholarship around kind of mythology and religion, that world of Eranos and so on, there's some fantastic stuff there, there's also some really problematic things. And my sense of it at that time, I became, I became aware of my sense of what I'd gathered from there, was a sense of the world's that was divided by the Copernican Revolution as a kind of symbolic emblem of the the, uh, start of the modern world. And it was kind of like there's there's modernity, and then before that there's tradition, which kind of vaguely kind of like fades off into a primordial past. But there's a fundamental kind of continuity there, and that for them, what tradition represented, what modernity overturned, it's something that is essentially rooted in the mists of time as far back as you go. You know, there's, you know, there's obvious differences between, say, hunter-gatherers and civilizations, but nothing compared to the differences between both of those and modernity because we've got this fundamental cleavage of history with the Copernican Revolution. And obviously that's incredibly simplistic. And I, I countered this with what I was aware was only a slightly less simplistic model but hopefully, it was a doorway into just further and further uh, awareness of complexity. So, what I tried to introduce was the, the idea of the agricultural revolution, the shift from hunter gatherers to agricultural, sedentary life. Being, if we're going to take the Copernican Revolution as a kind of you know, turning point in, in history, this transition was just as important. More, if Surely not more. If not more. And then for me, this kind of created a three-stage model of history. Again, wildly simplistic, but just a a kind of hopefully handy kind of way of being less simplistic than the traditional versus modern thing. So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot lot of places to go from that. But But um, what
0: you come up with is that the polar cosmos, mm -hmm. which is something we find in Eliade, we find in a different way in Corbin. So you posit a tradition and... Lo and behold, the tradition... No one's ever going to get pinned down on exactly what the content of the tradition is, which is very smart, but you can definitely say it's, oh, it's superior to all this other stuff. Mm -hmm. And it's how we're supposed to be, and it's how we were in our choice selected golden ages of the past, and everyone differs on that, but we can all agree that there was a golden age. Now, the problem becomes the agricultural revolution, because you argue, and I think you're spot on with this, all of these ways of thinking... And we can get into what that means, but for now, let's just say all of these ways of thinking are totally bound to sedentary, agricultural, even uh, literate Mm -hmm. cultural forms Mm -hmm. that, I mean, for God's sake, they're transmitted mostly through books, these these ideas. And we have very little reason to think that they're primordially human. So the idea of an axis mundi, for example, sounds kind of primordial, Mm -hmm. but, but apparently not. Um, I mean, we can talk about Yggdrasil, the world tree, maybe. We can talk about lots of stuff. But even that is talking about early Indo-Europeans who are... They're not hunter-gatherers anymore, that's for sure. Or they're at least in the transition from being hunter-gatherers to being pastoralists and so on and so forth, probably.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, within the kind of simplistic uh, framework that I've put forward as a kind of practical tool, hopefully it's really important obviously to to bear in mind that there's uh there's just so many so much differentiation when you really start to dig into it and i think one of the yeah sure one of the things is uh nomadism versus sedentism let's say uh i think this is this is hugely important for cosmology seems hugely important to me for um when you're looking at the idea of a um a cosmos which has a a fixed stable center around which everything turns this is going to be more intuitively appealing to people who live in one place but then but then okay so let's bear in mind that um, we talk about hunter-gatherers and think of them often or largely as nomadic but we're learning more and more about sedentary hunter-gatherers yeah and uh we were talking earlier about gebekli Tepe, and that's that's the most famous archaeological kind of uh instance of i guess where uh hunter-gatherers uh staying in one place uh has enabled this monumental architecture which we uh, associate with um sedentary agricultural people but it goes much further than that like there's Many, many instances uh, across what we would call the Mesolithic of hunter gatherers who have settled down is very, very often near coasts or water sources where there's a lot of fish and you can just like kick back and fish and you don't have to move. And then you get things like the Pacific Northwest coast cultures in America which after colombian colonization of america when they were discovered they were they were hunter gatherers they they weren't farming but they were very settled and they'd built up a lot of these things which to a certain extent i associate with settled agricultural uh, civilization like hierarchies and so on but within a technically you know hunter gatherer way of life so so that's you know just a huge kind of caveat about the complexities here. But I think there's still some mileage in, especially coming at all this from where I was coming at it when I started brewing ideas for the book, which is as someone who spent their 20s being interested in magic, mysticism, mythology, reading Eliad, being inspired by people like Terence McKenna. And I think this sense of a kind of cleavage between... Uh, hunter-gatherer life and agricultural life I think there's still a lot of mileage in going into that and thinking through exactly what it would mean I mean in terms of this cosmological orientation there's actually a strange paradox involved here because one of the aspects of having say fixed cardinal points is that these became useful as far as I can tell as civilizations developed which, from one angle, are sedentary and uh, oriented around a, um, a fixed centre of a city or so, on. but in another sense, as agricultural civilisation started, this process began of exhausting resources. So you'd, you know, over over generations, you would kind of maybe exhaust the uh, soils in a certain area, and then you would relocate. You'd go to another place. And then also between different centres there would be like big trade networks and what became useful there travelling over longer distances is to have this more fixed abstract cosmological set of reference points in order to orient yourself when you don't have your local landmarks. Yeah. So there's this paradoxical thing of the, the sense of a an abstract fixed cosmos which is... I think that's a, uh, even though it's grounded in the embodied experience of the sun rising over there and setting over there and you being in the middle, there's that very strong embodied sense to it, when you go into what we call geocentric cosmology, there's a a huge amount of abstraction involved. And I think that grows out of this kind of like odd interplay between settled life in early civilization and the you wouldn't call it nomadic but mobile aspect of of those civilizations whereas if you would take a classically kind of nomadic uh, small scale hunter gatherer culture they would maybe be uh, constantly mobile th- through the year going back to this place and th- that place but within a region that might might be you know might be 100 miles across or whatever but as they travelled around it, staying in different places, they would know that region really, really, really well, and they would orient themselves by landmarks, not by the sky, because they just they never travelled far enough to need the sky as a, a reference point. And I, so, all this all this is to as a, a kind of to me as a kind of a practical backdrop for some of the more. Um, mythic or psychological or or esoteric things um, which become important in what I would call like polar cosmologies and the differences between those and hunter-gatherers who might be nomadic but actually are uh, stationary within in another sense and Mm. through that relate themselves most strongly to aspects of the landscape, hills, rocks, streams So there's less of a sky focus. And not to say that they would would obviously have myths about the stars and and so on. And very often there would be tales of, you know, trance experiences traveling into the sky. But I think the distinction between that kind of life and the affordances and the priorities that uh, come up through agricultural civilization I think this is important to get our bearings in what we might call a history of, or or an origins for, the ascent tradition.
0: Word. Um, It's interesting that in the Greek tradition, the journey for wisdom in our early sources is universally downwards, Mm -hmm. into the earth, Mm -hmm. to the underworld. And this can be traced, not very far back in the Greek tradition, just to Homer, where Odysseus goes to the underworld. But... If we want to look to the Near East, we have underworld journey stories going back all the way to the Sumerians. So third millennium BCE, um, early Bronze Age. And probably these stories go back further, but then a whole can of worms is open. So it's always downwards. That's where you go if you want to get wisdom or if you want to challenge death Mm -hmm. or both um, in some way. And as far as I can tell the movement upward in the journey for wisdom in the Greek tradition comes with Plato. I can't... I don't know of any other journeys to the heavens. I mean, you have the Olympian gods. You always... In in the old... In the sort of common East Mediterranean worldview, you have a basically a tripartite world of earth in the middle, heavenly realm above, Mm -hmm. underworld below, with variations all over the place. But... It's only in Plato's time that, so the 5th century, that mathematical developments in what we call Babylon are leading to really modeling the heavens. And you suddenly get these geocentric cosmoses. And in Plato's Republic, you have the cave image, which is an exact inversion of the traditional journey, Katabasis journey for wisdom. You're yeah, in the ground, mm-hmm. but you're in ignorance. Mm-hmm. So you have to go up mm-hmm. to the see the sun to find wisdom. Then you go back down to try to free the other prisoners. Yeah. So it's a complete flip yeah. of the traditional story, and that seems to have taken that journey, the journey upward as a journey for wisdom, or as the um, post mortem journey of the dead
1: as well. Sure, I. One thing I'd like to ask is my sense of, and I think there's been hints of it when you've spoken in the podcast about that original descent, around some of these traditions, aren't there transposals of the the sky and the underworld and the idea of there being um, stars beneath the ground, beneath the earth? Yes. Now, I'm not quite sure how to phrase a question on this, but to ask it really simplistically, would you see that as a a later transposal when the sky becomes important and then they're kind of explaining the importance of these underground journeys by by sticking the stars there? Or would you think that there might be something in the very earliest underworld journeys where they're, they're already kind of transposing, there's an importance attached to the stars which is already there in their kind of placing stars under the under the ground. I think it's the latter.
0: Okay, yeah. And I don't know why. I mean, I, one theory I've come across is that in your in your traditional three-part cosmology where the earth is probably flat in the the middle earth, where does the sun go at night? It so, goes to the underworld. Sure. Obviously. You see this in the, the Bark of Ra in mm-hmm. Egyptian cosmology. You see this in the the figure of Shamash, whom I've heard in some sources, I'm, though I'm not an expert on Near Eastern stuff at all, is not just the sun, but the, the underworld. Mm-hmm. He's the sun at night when it's, you can't see it because it's under the earth. So it might be as simple as that. Like, everyone knows that the, the sun is in the underworld for half the day, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, but in the Greek tradition, the idea of there being a connection between the underworld and a vision of the heavens definitely predates scientific cosmology and geocentrism because mm-hmm. we find it in we find hints of it in mystery traditions that are very old and then we find it in the Orphic gold tablets the Orphic lamellae which were buried with people which to be fair the ones we have mostly date no earlier than the 5th century but I don't think anyone wants to argue that they're deeply influenced by new cosmological ideas they're they're rooted in old cosmological ideas yeah and in those they vary, but one of the things you you do in the underworld is walk along, you take one path and not the other, because one path leads to forgetfulness. You don't drink from the river of Lethe, because you'll forget. You go and then you you, you address the underworld gods, and you demand the waters of the well of Nemosyne, memory. Mm -hmm. And in order to do that, you, you say, I am a child of earth and the starry heaven. So you're calling on the heavens at the depths at the deepest part mm-hmm. which I think is thematically at least linked with the underworld sun that we see in rather late accounts of mystery initiation in Apuleius, in Virgil mm-hmm. but again ones that we think probably reflect
1: earlier traditions. Yeah sure yeah um, and my my mind naturally is going kind of like further and further back uh, and thinking of the painted caves of spain and france uh paleolithic painted caves are places where there's you know obviously like very very scant evidence to work with but you know good places to speculate around what might have uh, played out in in uh transition from the paleolithic to the mesolithic and later that that may have kind of like given i mean uh, i'm thinking as I talk about this of uh, David Lewis Williams' books um, The Mind in the Cave which he specifically deals with the the painted caves and he uses the evidence from uh, South African rock art um, and uh, trance practices among South African hunter-gatherers and I think he extends a line in his book Inside the Neolithic Mind, I think it is I think the he joins his line of thought about kind of underworld descent experiences in the Paleolithic, in the Painted Caves, to chattel Neolithic Anatolian city, where I believe in the early parts of the construction of the city, the early levels, and maybe later levels as well, but certainly earlier, all the rooms in the city, the doors were holes in the roof. So you go in to your house through a ladder in a hole in the roof um, and then with it inside there's kind of uh, in temples where you go into through the hole in the roof there's you know, balls and statues and paintings that he sees as kind of analogous to or developments lo- long term developments of painted caves now how, how all of this would play into by the time we get to Plato and descent experiences who knows it's purely speculation but, but you can see there's a possible thread there in uh, prehistory for Mm. for the descent experiences i mean i'll stress that my my kind of model of this emphasized the contrast between a vertical or vertically oriented cosmos and a horizontally oriented cosmos yeah um so the descent would technically fall within the bounds of the vertical it would be another kind of approach and i guess there's an overlap there because you're technically going down you're you're on the vertical axis still but you're kind of going into the earth so it's there's less affordance for maybe the imaginations venturing out into very kind of like open lofty distant abstract spaces uh, going down involves possibly more of a kind of uh, embodied close earthbound kind of experience so there's an interesting kind of like overlap between the horizontal and uh, vertical there, but but I got uh, in North I got very into the the contrast between those orientations and the idea that the vertical orientation is something that became Eliad's sense of it being um, an abs- absolute fixture of human culture and being that vertical orientation is something that was used to be just one aspect of human experience and it became fixed in a very strong sense and embedded within cosmologies as primordial. Yeah. But it became primordial at a certain point in in history. Yeah,
0: yeah, retrospectively primordial. Yeah. Um, I have come across one writer on descent and ascent stories in the classical period, I'll cite it in the notes who did use Levi Strauss here, the raw and the cooked. Mm -hmm. So the idea is that the descent can just flip. So human consciousness is organized according to these kind of dual polar opposites, which is just a theory he just states and you either accept it or you don't. But it does seem useful in the sense that we do seem to see this flip-flopping between the vertical ascent account and the vertical descent accounts, mm-hmm. where sometimes you go into the Earth and then suddenly you're in the sky. Sure. Or you go into the sky and it's, you're actually entering into a cave. Yeah. These sorts of
1: flip-flops. So it, it's at least intriguing, you know. Definitely, yeah. And there's, a, there's a, some interesting instances dotted through history of kind of um, the cave in the sky being taken as analogous. And yeah. There's, there's the... The idea of i don't know how far how, how far back you can project it but the pre-copernican sense of the sky being a um a dome and the stars being you know whether it's crystal sphere or whatever we're in this enclosed space hmm. um so hey so it's just scale you know if you go into a cave then you're kind of in a in a similar structure and Uh, The Minotaur. The Minotaur's labyrinth, I've I've read some speculation about that. Connections between the cave and sky thing in that. And I think maybe that's been solidified by a wonderful Leonora Carrington painting, which includes a Minotaur in a kind of subterranean labyrinth. And there's uh, twinkling stars in the roof of the labyrinth. And I think in uh, some Mithraic. Yeah. Temples, the stars within the... Yeah,
0: and the, the Mithraists in Italy called their temples caves. That was the, the word for it. In, in the provinces, they seem to have called them temples, like a fanum or a, a templum. But um, they went to great pains to make an arched roof, even, even when it wasn't very convenient to do so. And when there was a cave available... They would just use that okay so they would like a natural cave that mm-hmm. was like their preferred place for Mithraeum. Mm-hmm. and yes they often painted stars on the roof of the cave and porphyry in the on the cave of the nymphs tells us that the mithraic temple is meant to be an image of the cosmos mm-hmm. now, some people don't want to say that that's just a philosophic platonist imputing more sophistication on these mithraists mm-hmm. than they really deserve that's going to be one for the, the specialists to argue about forever. But um, it doesn't seem to me at all unreasonable to think that in a cult where the iconography is like has this incredible preponderance of astral imagery, identifiable astral imagery, mm. and clearly tells a story that has something to do with astral movements, a cult which first shows up in the first century so well within the period when... Geocentric cosmology has become dominant and become assumed by everyone, Mm -hmm. almost everyone. It doesn't seem particularly outrageous to assume that people, they really thought this cave was an image of the heavens. Mm. It almost seems obvious that they would think
1: that. Yeah, sure. And I think with things like this, um, you encounter problems of evidence in terms of... Sometimes it might be the case that a lack of evidence indicates something that is so taken for granted people don't bother talking about it. That's um, a really good point. And I think I, that's obviously a, a perspective that has its own pitfalls in terms of trying to demonstrate something. Um, and I I encountered this, I think, in, to some extent, I mean, certainly in the Christian era, you know, we know that the first you know, millennium and a half of, of Christianity was completely governed by a Geocentric cosmology, but any sense of it being focused on or particularly interested in the pole, the Pole Star, is actually quite scant. There's bits here and there, um, but it didn't do much for my kind of thesis that the the evidence for it was so scant. And I kind of, you know, there's a slight fudge there, but I think I kind of dealt with this by basically saying that this is a it, it's kind of there it's just like it's the it's so foundational that it's taken for granted and maybe kind of like ebbs and flows on the on the fringes of mysticism or kind of you know where people are really really kind of like grappling with the issues of cosmology and uh, how they relate to uh the observable world but but in you know kind of like the bulk of myth or ritual or culture um it, it's maybe just kind of not really there. It's just there's bits of folklore and whatever. It is. So, I mean, this, and this touches on something that I'm curious to talk about to, to, to hear what you have to say about it. And this is a, uh, I think it's something that I first picked up a perspective from Jocelyn Godwin's book Arctos. Um, right. And it pops up in the relatively limited literature about um, polar traditions is this idea of a contrast between polar and solar traditions. Um, mm. And for me, I mean, my perspective was always just that I, I was never that interested in the sky, as a, even though I was very interested in myth and prehistory and altered states and so on. The sky was never that interesting until I... Various things lured me towards looking into this idea of the the pole, and that there being something really uh, significant about that. And when I became interested in that, even though I was very very aware that kind of astrology is foundational for Western esotericism, and I'm like, oh, I should you know, I should study that more because it's the foundation of it all. Um, I never got round to it. And I always had this image of myself kind of like facing north. It's very simple. There's this there's this Start up there that everything revolves around, and there's a few asterisms that are significant because of that, but that's kind of it, you know. And there's all this kind of like wealth of complexity behind me in the southern skies that most people in our in the in the western tradition have been oriented towards, yeah. Uh, And I think so. You're talking about the celestial equator and the ecliptic and the zodiac, so yeah, like uh, I think the word solar being a shorthand for that, yeah. The sense that Western, not just esoteric tradition, but the Western religious mythical tradition, being very much kind of uh, focused on um, the planets and everything that goes on in the southern skies, and there's this kind of, either it's a blind spot or or it's something that's kind of taken for granted, and or there being a kind of esoteric-exoteric split going on. So I'm not sure I have a huge amount to say about it past that, but I I was wondering if you do, and um, maybe you were talking about the evidence of Mithraism and
0: yeah. Well, there's there's a really intriguing if
1: you want to look for the significance
0: of the pole in a Western tradition, look no further than high medieval early modern islamicate world where sure, yeah. which qurban documents and and has really made famous like mm-hmm. this the idea of the qutb the, the pole <laughs> being both astronomically significant but also being like a kind of spiritual rank that you can attain to and it becomes you you can't even be the head of a islamicate empire without being having the pole mm-hmm. among your many titles the pole of poles mm-hmm. so there very clear that but i mean they have an, su- such an unbelievably complex astronomy astrology at that stage by the early modern period and it also involves alchemy and it also involves it yeah. involves the sciences as a whole talisman making everything yeah that you ha- you can have the solar and the polar both interacting with perfect you know happiness. You can yeah. have all this stuff. It's yeah. just incredibly complicated. Which is another reason why we never get around to actually studying it, right? Just yes. leave that for the specialists <laughs> and the who are willing to put in the years of work to yeah. understand this stuff. So if I want to try to find that elsewhere, it does become more kind of dribs and drabs. In the Mithras liturgy, so-called, uh, which we have covered in the Shwepp, this work, which is our absolutely best source for a cosmic ascent ritual from antiquity, and maybe enables us to read other texts like the Hermetic Poimandres and the um, Ennead Reveals the Agduad as also being ritual ascent texts because of the many similarities. But this is just unmistakably a ritual. Because it says, say these words, close your eyes, then you will see these planetary spheres, and then you must do this. And mm-hmm. um, In this text, the, the, really the culmination of it... And what is this text aimed at? It's aimed at, the name of the the text is not the Mithras liturgy in the manuscript. It's a immortalization. That's what you're doing. Mm -hmm. You need to encounter Helios Mithras. And to do that, you need to do a lot of stuff. Then you need to make the gates of the heavens open, which again very much calls to mind this idea of the heavens as an architecture, like an arch Mm. or a a dome. Mm -hmm. And when that's opened, you will encounter the seven fates and the seven pole lords, who seem to be the seven stars, respectively, of Ursa Minor and Major. Uh, but both of them? They, I think they're both deemed to have seven stars each. Exactly. So, the, so then, one is the, the, the fates, mm-hmm. who have the faces, ah, okay. of, the faces mm-hmm. of serpents, mm-hmm. who are the stars of Ursa Minor, it's thought, and the pole lords, who have the faces of bulls, are the stars of Ursa Major as we call these um these constellations the bears and you encounter them before you encounter Helios Mithras who's this sort of higher sun god mm-hmm. above the lower sun he's not the visible sun he's a sort of transcendent aspect of the sun and loads and loads of lore comes in in interpreting this this testimony but what's really interesting is that That bit there you will find in line 662 to 678 in Betz's edition of the Mithras liturgy. Um, And we then learn that the god Helios Mithras that you see, that you encounter, is holding this uh, golden bull's shoulder on his shoulder. And we learn from the text that this shoulder is, quote, the bear that moves and turns the heavens Mm -hmm. so this is clearly this is like a a little explanatory aside for the greek audience who knows this constellation as the bear yeah the the egyptian audience knows this constellation as the bull's shoulder Mm -hmm. as we know from plutarch on Isis and osiris 359 d so that's some polar stuff Mm -hmm. right the pole lords are there you have to get past them to get to helios mithras and he's holding a, a golden polar
1: constellation on his shoulder, yeah, which is really I know I'm not sure what dates we're talking about here and uh, second or third century CE and that's the dates of the evidence and there would be no idea of how what they were drawing on how far far back that would go but we should bear in mind we, we can we talk now about the pole star Polaris which depending on your kind of uh, you know where you set your boundaries be- only became polar around five, six hundred years ago. So going further back you go past there, the less there's a clear kind of like star that sits at the point where everything uh, turns around. So, but clearly the, uh, the polar structure of the sky would still strike people, obviously. And there being no particular star at that point makes the identifiable asterisms around that point even more significant. For I sure. Th- I think that's where most of the interesting, uh, not just Western evidence, but particularly Western evidence of polar traditions or, or resonance or whatever, come from those asterisms, Ursa Minor and uh, Major. Yeah, it just reminds me of, I, I rewatched watched uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which has a really interesting nod that c- I, it's hard to tell... How knowledgeable Spielberg was being, but the Devil's Tower, I think it's called in the film, uh, which is a this sort of butte, yeah, yeah, in yeah, and it's like the... a it's natural place monument, I think, which was uh, originally a Native American sacred mount. I forget the the name of the the original name of it, but um, I think it's the case that the kind of fluted patterning on it. Richard Dreyfuss kind of replicates with his fork in the mashed potatoes. Yeah. I think in the native myth, those markings are the claw marks of a bear. And I think it's that a a woman turned herself into the, uh, maybe a woman was escaping from a bear. There was a chase, a woman, a bear, and the bear was kind of like clambering up that thing and kind of ended up in the sky as that constellation. I think I'm remembering that right. And in the film, the point where they Dreyfus and the woman get to the kind of landing pad near the top of the tower and everything hushes and the, the aliens are approaching, what you see initially are seven star-like lights but moving very unlike stars in different directions and they all slowly align in the shape of Ursa... You're Major. kidding. Yeah. And, it, and just before that's happening, the guy on the, the megaphone is saying, OK, everyone, watch the skies to the north-northwest. And then you get this kind of like Ursa Major next to the tower, which is I, it's almost... I, surely that would be uh, a, a conscious nod to the, to the native myth. But maybe more interesting for the Western East territory tradition is Spielberg's Jewish background and what i think i mean again I don't, I don't know whether they were consciously wrought associations but i think there's clear resonance between the imagery and uh associations there in that film and ezekiel's ezekiel's uh visions now i guess on a on a crass level there's uh Von Daniken's Chariots of the Gods. <laughs> exactly, von Daniken's. No. The um, <laughs>
0: the connection between chariots and spaceships is already well in the yeah. zeitgeist by the time
1: Spielberg makes his film. Yeah, and there's, there's details like obviously in Ezekiel, he talks about the uh, the direction of the north is is specifically mentioned as yeah. where the divisions arrive from in the sky, mm. and talks about um, clouds with a, a fire enfolding itself, heralding the divisions uh, and and this is kind of what you see in Close Encounters, is these kind of like boiling, roiling clouds with all the, the lights of the UFOs kind of flashing behind. So so I, I kind of think Close Encounters is kind of like a, a bit of a nod to the native myths and a bit of a nod to Ezekiel, where where there's these mentions of the importance of the northerly direction right there in the original myths for a very, very important ascent tradition yeah. within... East terrorism, yeah, within the West, yes, Fulston, the West yeah, because yeah.
0: it's biblical, it's Jewish, and it's it's it, crucially, it's you know, it's one of the main seeds for all this kind of apocalyptic ascent narrative that will will burst onto the scene mm-hmm. in the Hellenistic period and beyond into the Middle Ages. Because that's one of the key texts, you know, yeah. and it's so full of crazy imagery that you can do almost anything with it. But that um, that's an, a, another classic, a perfect example of. One of these glimpses of the north and maybe the pole being really significant somehow in a visionary text,
1: but what do we make of that? You know. Yeah, and I mean, my I think one of my early encounters with all this was was what Jeffrey Ash made of this in his book The Ancient Wisdom. I think he I I think it's the, the there's that in a follow-up called Dawn Behind the Dawn, which are his books about the kind of like northerly oriented submerged tradition that he claims to be kind of like excavating from history. I think he, cause it, he's well known for his Arthurian um, okay. stuff. And I think my sense is that he, he got on the trail of the polar stuff through Arthurian legends and Arthur's Wayne is uh, one yeah. of the names for Ursa Major. Yeah. I think it was something to do with that. And he kind of like, he was following his nose through Arthurian uh, research. Well, because the, the name Arthur, I believe, means bear. But of course, yeah, yeah. yeah. So the, there's all these, uh, there's those connections, and for that, for him, developed into this uh, bigger project. And as the ancient wisdom dawn behind the dawn, they're, they're you know uh, even more speculative than my my work. And but there is something kind of beguiling and fascinating about the way Ash presents it. I think he starts with the significance of the number seven you know, why is the number seven so prevalent in mystical traditions? And you could say, well, three years as well and whatever, but but he makes a good case for it. And as you read it, he kind of, yeah, I do. I find that a kind of uh, fun kind of exciting speculative journey that he goes on. And I think, you know, he's, some of his conclusions are very hard to substantiate, but I think along the way he makes a very, very good case for something that uh, other people have picked up on in less speculative context which is the the significance of those stars the I, I think especially the big dipper or ursa majors i think it's the bear's hind it's not the full the, the ursa major itself is like more extensive it's not just those seven stars so that seven star asterism not just in the west obviously if you go to uh china um there's um uh, quite a complex Taoist tradition of magic based around Pacing, tracing out the those stars, and I think there were kind of like Taoist rituals where you would kind of like trace the pattern of uh, the Big Dipper in a kind of ritual space, and you mm. would mimic the the shuffling gait of the uh, the Yellow Emperor. I think is the the foundationary kind of like Chinese uh, emperor who had uh, one leg was lame, so mm. you would kind of shuffle along in the shape of the the Big Dipper, and this would. This would be another transposition of the the sky and the earth. You, through tracing the pattern of the stars on the ground, you would transpose yourself into the heavens in order to gain immortality. Usually, is the the big prize. Yeah. Um, so there's the the obvious kind of visibility and distinctness of that asterism. Its proximity to the pivotal point of the sky has. Left it kind of, you know, uh, scattered in many traditions as a, as, uh, uh, whether it's more or less esoteric, yeah. So I don't know what you what you say about the Sufi tradition is. I think interesting in the sense that they kind of they take everything in. There's the kind of like there's the um, planetary solar, but then there's the kind of like polar stuff as well. And well, that's the whole system of the whole cosmos. So naturally, you would deal with you'd have have aspects of your tradition and your uh, practices and mythologies that would deal with all the different aspects. And in other areas, like Western tradition, it's become a bit more kind of lopsided towards one aspect of the sky, and other aspects have been neglected. So it's always it's hard to know whether the evidence you're coming across is evidence of what people are making of these things or whether you're making something of just the evidence that happens to be left. Yeah.
0: It's tricky. It's especially difficult when you get down to things like finding a lot of number seven and number three, you know, what do you (laughs) make of that? Um, But great fun. Yeah, absolutely. I love, that's one of the things I love about your book. It's, it's a playing with powerful symbols, let's say historically, but in an intelligent way. So using the historical imagination, but not saying, and I've discovered the code or I've, you know, figured it all out. This is what it really, you know, but just kind of, isn't this intriguing that we see this image here and then we see it over here. But then when we see it in the modern times, it's transformed. Mm -hmm. This sort of stuff I find really fascinating. And maybe we should talk a little bit about Copernicus and afterwards. Because one of the things you do in your book is you talk about the geocentric cosmos quite a bit which, as we've discussed, isn't quite as ancient as some uh, traditionalists would like us to think. It's very, not modern, but uh, recent. And then there's a sort of palace coup, and Kepler and Copernicus and some other people, building probably on the work of Central Asian Islamicate astronomers, Mm -hmm. but that's another story, decide, you know what, no, it's all moving around the sun. And it's more, there's more to the story than that because you have Tycho Brahe saying, well, maybe some of it's moving around the sun and mm-hmm. some isn't, and various different models get put get floated. But just I think just having lots of telescopes lying around makes it really possible for the first time to say, yeah. well, let's just figure it out. Let's just look, do experiments, and figure out which story is right. Mm-hmm. turns out Copernicus is... sort of Neo-Copernican model is right. And then the whole architectural lid gets blown off the cosmos, right? So it's not cozy anymore Mm -hmm. here on Earth, potentially. What happens then?